Hey everybody, and welcome to the eighth episode of SFD. We're finally pushing on to the summer of 1953, but I think we could do with a quick recap to remind us of where we are in the story. Right now, it's the summer of 1951, and Mohammad Mossadegh, a lifelong constitutionalist politician, has risen to become Prime Minister of Iran, swept into office on a platform of oil nationalization and a tidal wave of public enthusiasm. He spent his first few months turning the Anglo-Iranian oil company into the National Iranian, NIOC, against the massive resistance of the British, and their virtual puppet, the young Shah, Mohammad Reza. Mossadegh draws his support from the National Front, a loose coalition of middle-class liberals and anti-monarchist clergy. The other major political force in the country besides the Shah's court is the Tuda, the Iranian Communist Party, which fears that Mossadegh is just another representative of colonial oil interests, this time shilling for the Americans instead of the British but they've been guardedly supportive as he's moved ahead with nationalization. The British, for their part, sued the Iranian regime at the World Court in The Hague, and the outcome of that case is still pending. Right now, though, they've decided to take their complaints to the Security Council of the United Nations, and Mossadegh himself is flying to New York to defend his program and his country, and he's headed to D.C. afterwards to meet with Truman. Rubicons are being crossed, and dies are being cast, and we're charging forwards towards the final crisis. I'm Jonathan Coombs, and this is Safe for Democracy. America is today the strongest, the most influential, and most productive nation in the world. ¿Para qué sirve entonces la civilización? ¿Para qué sirve la conciencia del hombre? ¿Para qué sirven las Naciones Unidas? But these differences were all forgotten in one unshakable unity of determination to find a way to end war. We do not want a war. We do not now expect a war. This generation of Americans has already had enough, more than enough, of war and hate and oppression. Across the world, we're hunting down the killers, and we're showing them the definition of American justice. There is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties. We have an obligation to be of help where we can to freedom fighters and lovers of freedom and democracy from Afghanistan to Nicaragua. The United States has no intention of determining the precise form of Iraq's new government. That choice belongs to the Iraqi people. Those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. We want democracy to survive for all generations to come, not to become the insolvent phantom of tomorrow. When the British suit in The Hague failed to turn up any immediate results in their favor, Foreign Secretary Herbert Morrison began formulating a plan to have the UN Security Council condemn nationalization. The U.S. tried to convince Morrison that giving the eloquent Mossadegh a chance to defend his position on the world stage could only be a bad idea, but he would not be dissuaded. When the U.S. ambassador in London delivered a note suggesting that he soften the text of the resolution, he responded, quote, I will not be put in the dock with Mossadegh. We have been the saints, and he has been the naughty boy, unquote. Needless to say, the British pushed ahead with the plan, and on the 8th of October 1951, Mossadegh stepped off the plane in New York, ready to litigate in person on his country's behalf. Long quotes now. The meat of British representative to the UN, Sir Gladwin Jebb's statement to the Security Council was, quote, 
The Iranian government, for no obvious reasons of its own, perpetually represents the AIOC as a gang of unscrupulous bloodsuckers whose one idea is to drain the Iranian nation of any wealth it may possess. These wild accusations are simply not true. Quite apart from its financial contributions to the Iranian economy, the record of the company in Iran has been one which must arouse the greatest admiration from the social point of view and should be taken as a model of the form of development which would bring benefits to the economically less developed areas of the world. Far from trying to keep down the Iranian people, as has been alleged, the company has strained every effort to improve the standard of living and education of all of its employees so that they might be able to play a more useful part in the great work which remains to be done in Iran. To ignore entirely these activities and to put forth the company as responsible for oppression, corruption, and treachery could be described as base ingratitude if it were not simply ridiculous, unquote. Mossadegh's response went as follows, quote, My countrymen lack the bare necessities of existence. Their standard of living is probably one of the lowest in the world. Our greatest natural asset is oil. This should be the source of work and food for the population of Iran. Its exploitation should properly be our national industry, and the revenue from it should go to improve our conditions of life. As now organized, however, the petroleum industry has contributed practically nothing to the well-being of the people, or to the technical progress or industrial development of my country. The evidence for that statement is that after 50 years of exploitation by a foreign company, we still do not have enough Iranian technicians and must call in foreign experts. Although Iran plays a considerable role in the world's petroleum supply, and has produced a total of 315 million tons over a period of 50 years, its entire gain, according to the accounts of the former company, has been only 110 million pounds sterling. To give you an idea of Iran's profits from this enormous industry, I may say that in 1948, according to accounts of the former Anglo-Iranian oil company, its net revenue amounted to 61 million pounds. But from those profits, Iran received only 9 million pounds, although 28 million went into the United Kingdom treasury in income tax alone. I must add here that the population living in the oil region of southern Iran and around Abadan, where there is the largest oil refinery in the world, is suffering in conditions of absolute misery without even the barest necessities of life. If the exploitation of our oil industry continues in the future as it has in the past, if we are to tolerate a situation in which the Iranian plays the part of a mere manual worker in the oil fields of Masjid-i-Suleiman, Agajari, Kerman Shah, and in the Abadan refinery, and if foreign exploiters continue to appropriate practically all of the income, then our people will remain forever in a state of poverty and misery. These are the reasons that have prompted the Iranian parliament, the Majlis and the Senate, to vote unanimously in favor of nationalizing the oil industry." Unquote. On the third day of the session, after listening to another slew of pejorative half-truths and outright lies from the British representative, Mossadegh offered this last statement to the Security Council. Quote, I have not made actual count of the pejorative words used by Sir Gladwin Jeb in his various statements, but as you leaf through the pages of the record, defamatory word after defamatory word springs to the eye. Our actions are described as insensate and our people as deluded. We have been precipitate, arbitrary, and have made life intolerable. Our legislative process is described as one of hustling. We are damned as intransigent and accused of presenting ultimatums. Our grievances are dismissed as wild accusations. We are ridiculous and exhibit base ingratitude. We are intemperate, exploiters of our own people, and save our own necks by inflaming our people against foreigners. Our aims are illusory and our means of achieving them suicidal. Our case is presented as one of the lame leading the blind in pursuit of a phantom. 
We have long realized that our hopes for developing our country, improving the condition of our people, and expanding the opportunities available to them were dependent to a great extent on this extraordinarily important national resource. The record of the contribution that oil has made to our national prosperity is as pitiable as that of the crumbs which we have been allowed to pick up from the former company's table. I respond readily to the United Kingdom's representative's appeal to face the practical facts of this situation, and I am no less eager than he is to negotiate. Wherever the former company may operate in the future, however, it will never again operate in Iran. Neither by trusteeship nor by contract will we turn over to foreigners the right to exploit our oil resources." Unquote. By the end of the sessions, Russia was the only permanent member of the Security Council opposed to the resolution. The United States was leaning toward abstaining. France introduced a motion to table discussions until the verdict came back from The Hague, and the non-permanent members, overwhelmingly from the developing world, were behind Iran. The discussions were tabled, and Mossadegh came off as the eloquent representative of a bullied up-and-coming nation suffering from British oppression. President Truman's luncheon guest for their first meeting. The Premier is urged to try for peaceful agreement in the quarrel over Iran's nationalization of British oil holdings. And the world hopes that from this friendly get-together, some solution will emerge. Mossadegh headed to Washington after his star turn at the UN and started another round of talks on the oil question, this time with George McKee, Dean Acheson's oil man come diplomat. And surprisingly, this time the plans seemed to be making headway. He and Mossadegh pieced together an agreement in which the NIOC would retain control of the Kerman Shah refinery and the oil fields, meaning the exploration, production, and transportation of crude would remain in Iranian hands. In exchange, the NIOC would sell the Abadan refinery to a non-British company, probably Royal Dutch Shell, and turn the proceeds from the sale over to AIOC as compensation. The National Iranian Oil Company would sell a fixed quantity of oil to the Anglo-Iranian for 15 years, and the Iranian government would allow four non-Iranians and non-British onto the seven-man board of the NIOC, and the company in control of Abadan would commit to hire and train Iranians up to and including in management positions. It's this deal, more than anything else, I think, which makes me think that Truman and McGee were bargaining in good faith. The U.S. would benefit from a stronger supply of oil under this arrangement, but not as much as if the British were still in control. And they were willing to cede control of extraction to the Iranians, even though that gave them ultimate control over supply. Mossadegh, for all that the Cambridge history, Kinzer, and almost every other history of the crisis have painted the man as totally intransigent, was on board with the new arrangement, despite that it would likely be less than popular back home. Unfortunately for everyone involved, in the days that McGee and Mossadegh were in talks, Winston Churchill, running with his future foreign minister Anthony Eden, had just won an election to put him back in the prime minister's residence in Whitehall, an election in which he'd campaigned on the Atlee government's weakness on the Iran question, and the beneficial consequences a splutter of musketry at Abadan might offer the British. From Abrahamian, quote, Not surprisingly, Foreign Secretary Eden rejected outright McGee's package as totally unacceptable. He insisted it was far better to have no agreement than to have a bad one, unquote. And from Kinzer now, quote, The change in Britain's government would prove decisive for Iran. Attlee had done whatever he thought possible on behalf of Anglo-Iranian, stopping only at the use of force. Churchill, who considered Mossadegh an elderly lunatic bent on wrecking his country and handing it over to the communists, was willing and even eager to cross that line, unquote. As we get into the events of 1952 and 1953, I have a feeling that I'm going to be referring vaguely and often to something like the, quote, deteriorating situation on the ground in Iran, unquote. And it can be hard to see what I'm referring to as I blaze through these events and memorandums and everything. 
But what I want you to keep in mind is that the situation in Iran from May 1951, or even earlier, through 1953, is not in any conventional sense good. Mossadegh's election and the passage of the nationalization law and the decision at the UN were all good things, but the country was in delicate shape. It's only a couple of years out from a joint British and Russian occupation during the war and from the atrocities that came with the Shah putting down the separatist movement in Azerbaijan. Mossadegh's finally in control, but only as the result of a long series of prime ministers who had been put up to work on the supplemental agreement and thrown away, meaning the Majlis's effectiveness and the public's confidence in it were probably not at all-time highs. The British were filling each day's newspapers with invective directed at Mossadegh, and the NIOC and British sanctions were having a deleterious effect on the Iranian economy. So things were bad, and Mossadegh and the National Front were trying to govern in addition to fighting prolonged battle with the UK over nationalization. Mossadegh's agenda in 1952, having spent most of 1951 embroiled in the problems with AIOC and getting the NIOC running, had to do with elections. He felt that there was no way that Iranian democracy could remain on a firm footing even during his term, and remember, he turned 70 in 1952, or after it, unless it reformed its electoral laws. You remember how I said the extension of the universal male franchise without other stipulations on how to run elections had allowed tribal leaders, landlords, the British, and the Shah to rig elections? I won't get into the details of the policy, because we're already running long, but Mossadegh wanted to reform the electoral laws in Iran. Besides that, he wanted to move the country as far towards being a classically liberal constitutional monarchy, like Britain, as he could. From the Cambridge history, quote, Although preoccupied with the oil crisis, and increasingly with the hostility of the palace, Mossadegh was not unsympathetic to calls for reform. The National Front moved towards the left and urged major electoral reforms, but in doing so it alienated the landowners and tribal leaders, who now drew closer to the monarchists and the military. Several months of maneuvering followed in which the National Front called for a program of social justice, while conservatives sought in every way to hinder or distract the work of government." Unquote. In the June of 1952, Mossadegh and the National Front, tired of being stymied by conservative retrenchment in parliament, called for elections in the hope of bringing in a new majlis which would support the program. Despite his great popularity with the masses, none of Mossadegh's electoral reforms were yet in effect, and the Shah, the British, and the landlords did their usual bit of election rigging. When Mossadegh saw that the voting in the rural districts was going against the National Front, he called the elections off once 80 deputies had been elected from most of the more progressive urban districts, which was enough for a quorum. He was within his legal authority as prime minister to make that move, as long as the elected members of the chamber ratified it, which they did. But it looked like electoral shenanigans of the type that the British and the Shah were used to pulling, and His Majesty's government made full use of the elections in the press. A question is going to come up in the last year of Mossadegh's time as PM, between the summers of 1952 and 1953, about how far a head of democratic government can go in preserving the integrity of a state and his democracy. This came up with Jacobo Arbenz in 1954 in the first episode of this podcast when, under great pressure from the CIA, the imminent threat of invasion, and only months away from the coup that would not just unseat him, but plunge his country into decades of horror, he finally abrogated habeas corpus in the interest of maintaining order. The Americans likewise pilloried him for it in the press, as they themselves pursued a more insidious agenda. Mossadegh will take steps in this year to keep himself in power that are very much at odds with the life he'd been living since the Constitutional Revolution, an avowed constitutionalist and democrat, always championing the rule of law, and what's more, its spirit and not its letter. The ploy in the 17th Majlis election was the first of those steps, but I think there's a strong case in Mossadegh's defense, and I'll be laying it out as we go on. If it is correct, as I believe it is, that 
a fundamental element of human nature is the need for creative work, for creative inquiry, for free creation without the arbitrary limiting effects of coercive institutions, then of course it will follow that a decent society should maximize the possibilities for this fundamental human characteristic to be realized. That means trying to overcome the elements of repression and oppression and destruction and coercion that exist in any existing society as a historical residue. Mossadegh's popularity with his people stayed strong, despite the incident with the election, but he felt his position to have been weakened, and when he caught wind of further conspiratorial activities taking place between the palace and the British embassy, he made a move. Under the text of the Constitution, the Prime Minister was to name a cabinet and submit it to the Shah for approval. But since the passage of the Constitution, and as long as Mohammad Reza had been on the Peacock throne, the Prime Minister appointed the cabinet he wanted, and the Shah got to pick the Minister of War part and parcel of the Shah's continuing control of the military, the only non-symbolic power he held in Iran. So when Mossadegh formally presented his list of cabinet ministers to the Shah on July 16, 1952, he included a name for Minister of War. When the Shah refused to acquiesce to his choice, Mossadegh resigned as prime minister and the country went into an uproar. From Abrahamian, quote, by raising the issue, Mossadegh made a direct pitch to the public, bypassing not only the Shah, but also the Majlis. He was calling on the public to choose between himself and the Shah, between himself and the parliamentary opposition, and between himself as the national spokesman and the British-owned oil company. For the first time, he was openly criticizing the Shah for violating the constitution and standing in the way of the national struggle. He emphasized that the country would not enjoy real freedom as long as the armed forces continued to tamper with elections, unquote. Mossadegh's resignation on the 17th began what became known as the July Uprising. The Shah brought the wily old man who had handled the Azerbaijan crisis, Kavam, out of retirement to serve as prime minister, and the Tuda, the National Front, and almost everyone else in the country took to the streets either to celebrate or to protest, with the latter party greatly outnumbering the monarchists and Anglophiles. As far as the Tuda, this demonstration had finally convinced the party that Mossadegh was a true nationalist, and pro-Mossadegh and anti-Soviet elements took over the Tuda's leadership, throwing their support behind the man throughout 1952 and 1953. Ayatollah Kashani, the cleric and member of the National Front with ties to the Fedayeen, also played a significant role in turning his followers out to protest and increasing the pressure on the palace. After five days of rioting, protest, speeches, and Kavam's ineffectual attempts to bring order and consolidate his position, the Shah gave in and appointed Mossadegh prime minister again giving him free hand to choose his war minister. Mossadegh acted quickly. From yet another of Abrahamian's books, Iran Between Two Evolutions, quote, Mossadegh followed up his victory with a rapid succession of blows struck not only at the Shah and the military, but also at the landed aristocracy and the two houses of parliament. He excluded royalists from the cabinet and named himself acting minister of war. He transferred Reza Shah's lands back to the state, cut the palace budget, and allocated the savings to the health ministry placed the royal charities under government supervision, forbade the Shah to communicate directly with foreign diplomats, forced Princess Ashraf, the politically active twin sister of the Shah, to leave the country, and refused to act against Tuda papers that denounced the court as, quote, the center of corruption, treason, and espionage, unquote. Indeed, he himself eventually accused the court of continuing to meddle in politics and secured a special parliamentary committee to investigate the constitutional issues between the cabinet and the Shah. 
The committee reported that the constitutional laws placed the armed forces under the jurisdiction of the government and not of the Shah. Mossadegh also struck hard at the officer corps. He renamed the war ministry as the defense ministry, cut the military budget by 15%, and announced that the country would in future buy only defensive equipment. Moreover, he nominated General Vosuk, his own relative and a nephew of Kavam, to be assistant minister of defense, transferred 15,000 men from the army to the gendarmerie, and drastically reduced the budget of the secret service. He also set up two investigatory commissions, one under the finance minister to hear charges of corruption in the process of arms procurement, another under the cabinet to examine past procedures for military promotions. Furthermore, he spoke of ending the American military mission, purged the army of 136 officers, including 15 generals, and, placing the few officers he trusted in top positions, used martial law against his political opponents. One former war minister, taking sanctuary in the Senate, declared martial law to be unconstitutional and accused the government of inciting class warfare. Unquote. Mossadegh was able to push through all those measures because along with his return to the premiership, he secured a Majlis vote which awarded him emergency power to enact law by decree to solve financial, electoral, judicial, and educational problems, with the stipulation that the Majlis would have to approve the agenda at the end of the term of six months. In addition to trying to defang the monarchy and the military and put them at the service of the Majlis versus the other way around, Mossadegh pushed through an agrarian reform to alleviate the plight of the peasant farmer, who, like in Guatemala, was deprived of land by large corporations and absentee landlords owning dozens of villages. He enacted a tax on the most wealthy to make up for shortfalls in oil revenue, and he finally passed a slate of electoral reforms to make the Majlis more responsible to the populace, instead of the populace being responsive to the Shah and the British. This was a serious departure from normal constitutional government, and a kind of throwback to Roman republicanism, where the Senate could appoint a dictator in a time of crisis and go back through and approve or dismantle what he'd done when his term was up. And I think one of the ways that you can judge the men who end up taking extraordinary measures is by what they do with the power they find in their hands. When the Senate made Lucius Cornelius Sulla dictator for the making of laws and the settling of the Constitution, he went about reforming Roman society in the best way he could think of to return it to stability and greatness. But he also published the proscriptions, death lists that ended up eliminating the cream of Roman senatorial youth. Mossadegh, by contrast, kept the press free, allowed protest and assembly, did no killing, and pursued the same agenda he'd been working towards for the whole of his political life. As if to confirm him in the right, the Hague handed down its decision on the 22nd of July, just as it had been reinstated as prime minister. The World Court sided with the Iranians, finding that the 1933 convention was clearly a contract between a state and a company, and that the UK had no standing and the Hague had no jurisdiction. Now, we know that Americans are wary of international institutions and that we're not parties to the International Criminal Court, and we withdrew from the World Court's jurisdiction when it ruled that our secret war in Nicaragua was a violation of international law. But how cool is it that I could just type in the name of the Iran case and pop up all of the original documents? court statements, and both the official, additional, and dissenting opinions. Pretty cool, is what I think. It's in the summer of 1952, at the juncture of these two events, the court finding and Mossadegh's return to almost dictatorial power on a wave of popular support, that the British most ought to have been chastised into reconsidering the position. It is instead the moment when they definitively decided that Mossadegh could not be got out through democratic means, and that they would have to foment a coup d'etat. Mossadegh, smelling a plot that was most definitely taking shape, closed the British embassy and severed diplomatic ties on the 16th of October, 1952. That might sound like a light touch, given the circumstances, but what you ought to know, even up to today, but definitely at the time, 
is that spy games were run out of embassies. Removing the British legation and everyone in it from the country eliminated 90% of plotters. The diplomatic pouch is an easy way to smuggle cash into the country, and the legation's territory itself is a staging ground and hideout. It's the loss of the embassy compound that led Churchill and his foreign secretary Anthony Eden to begin making more and more overt overtures to the Americans, because the British needed the U.S. Embassy to do whatever they eventually decided on doing. Dean Acheson and Truman continued urging the British to pull back from the brink and to negotiate with what was a clear national leader with an overwhelming mandate from a democratic system, but they were intractable. From Kinzer, quote, Eden's contempt for the political and intellectual capacity of people in poor countries, which he did not hide, startled some foreigners. One of them was Acheson, who was taken aback by Eden's view of Iranians. Quoting Acheson, talking about Eden now, They were rug dealers, and that's all they were, Acheson lamented about Eden's attitude. You should never give in, and they would always come around and make a deal if you stayed firm. Unquote, unquote. Mossadegh was to some degree protected, as long as he had Truman in his corner, but the U.S. presidential election in November 1952 ensured that the protection would expire in January 1953, when Eisenhower stepped into the Oval Office. Three guys whose names you should remember from Guatemala came in with Eisenhower, and those were Walter Beadle Smith and Allen and John Foster Dulles. Smith was the director of the CIA under Truman and became the deputy secretary of state under Eisenhower. Allen Dulles, a career diplomat before the Second World War and a spy during and after it, had worked for Beadle Smith and under Eisenhower became director of the CIA. John Foster was for the whole of the first half of the century a partner working in international law for Sullivan and Cromwell, which is one of those firms that sounds only vaguely familiar, but which had a hand in pretty much every world event for more than a few decades. He worked on the Treaty of Versailles for the United States, became prominent in Republican politics, and under Eisenhower was appointed Secretary of State. The Dulles brothers were classic American aristocracy, from a blue-blooded family on the East Coast, educated at Princeton, and catapulted into the civil service and the highest legal echelons, because they had the brains and the ability to match their pedigree. What they also had was the conviction of all aristocracy that they were born to lead. Their time with Eisenhower and the tight coordination they could achieve as brothers at the head of the State Department and the Central Intelligence Agency would allow them to wreak that confidence on the unfortunate smaller and browner countries of the rest of the world. The British head spy in Tehran, Monty Woodhouse, had been thrown out along with the diplomatic staff, and he took a trip to the United States to pitch the new administration on an intervention. Quoting him now, Quote, not wishing to be accused of trying to use the Americans to pull British chestnuts out of the fire, I decided to emphasize the communist threat to Iran rather than the need to recover control of the oil industry, unquote. So he'd picked the right tactic, because the Dulles brothers were inveterate, possibly paranoid, cold warriors. From Kinzer, quote, Iran had immense oil wealth, a long border with the Soviet Union, an active communist party in the Tuda, and a nationalist prime minister. The Dulles brothers believed that there was a serious danger that it would soon fall to communism. The prospect of a second China terrified them. When the British presented their proposal to overthrow Mossadegh and replace him with a reliably pro-Western prime minister, they were immediately interested, unquote. So many things are wrong with that. First, not that this hasn't been talked to death, but the idea that Iran or any country was going to become a second China because it had a nationalist democratic government and a communist party is so bunk. China came out of the Second World War into its own civil war, with the West already on Chiang Kai-shek's side. Iran's situation wasn't anything like that. Although, to Cold Warrior minds, even a democratically elected communist had to be a Soviet stooge. What's more, this ploy got the U.S. involved in a play for specifically British oil. 
McGee's talks with Mossadegh had already proved that the Iranian prime minister was more than willing to come to terms with what he saw to be a good-faith negotiator. And it's totally opaque to me how you could look at Mossadegh and his incredible popularity with his people and think, yeah, just swap out the prime minister and then everything will be good again. The most specifically American tragedy is how unnecessary it was. Iranians at that point in time loved the U.S. and its representatives, and it would have been so much easier, more effective, and moral to tell the British to piss off with their colonialism the way we later would with Suez and to reach our own agreement with the Iranians. Stephen Kinzer has a long section where he details the work Americans had done in the 19th and 20th centuries in Iran, and it's great, but it's way too long to include more than a couple of paragraphs here, just to show you the idea. Quote, Americans were regarded with nearly universal admiration and affection, said the graduate of a Presbyterian missionary school for girls. The American contribution to the improvement and, it was felt, the dignity of our impoverished, strife-torn country had gone far beyond their small numbers. Without attempting to force their way of life on people or convert us to their religion, they had learned Persian and started schools, hospitals, and medical dispensaries all over Iran, unquote. Now, quoting Kinzer and not any witness in particular, quote, The dedication of these exemplary men and women was not the only reason many Iranians admired the United States. American officials had spoken out to defend Iran's rights. The U.S. sharply criticized the 1919 Anglo-Persian Agreement in which Britain acquired colonial powers in Iran. That same year at Versailles, President Woodrow Wilson was the only world leader who supported Iran's unsuccessful claim for monetary compensation from Britain and Russia for the effects of their occupation during the war. In the mid-1920s, an American envoy in Tehran was able to report that Persians of all classes still have unbounded confidence in America, unquote, unquote. Truman and Acheson had kept that attitude up, acting as a stay on British intentions, and Americans had served as financial advisors, oil advisors, and more through all the decades of the 20th century. The Iranians trusted us. The Iranians wanted to work with us. The Iranians would much rather have been our partner than that of the Soviet Union, which was viewed with nearly as much suspicion as the British. Did we capitalize on that goodwill? Dean Acheson said of the UK's handling of AIOC after nationalization that, quote, never had so few lost so much so stupidly and so fast, unquote, but that statement would apply just as well to the Dulles brothers, Eisenhower, and the goodwill the U.S. enjoyed coming out of the Second World War. Ike for president, Ike for president, Ike for president, Ike for president. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president. Hang out the banner and beam the drum, we'll take Ike to Washington. We don't want John or Dean or Harry, let's do that big job right. Just get in step with the guy that's hip, get in step with Ike. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president. Hang out the banner and beam the drum, we'll take Ike to Washington. We got to get where we are going. Travel day and night for president. Let Adelaide go the other way. We'll all go with president. You like Guyton, I like Guyton. Everybody likes I for president. Hang out the banner, beat the drum. We'll take Guyton to Washington. We'll take Guyton to Washington. Now is the time for all good Americans to come to the aid of their country. Nineteen fifty-three was both a big year and a bad year for Mossadegh. In January, he obtained another twelve months' worth of emergency powers from the Majlis and used them to good effect. From the Cambridge History, quote, notwithstanding the tremendous pressures to which the Mossadegh government was subjected, its last year of life witnessed some solid achievements. Irrigation projects were launched in the countryside, plans were initiated to improve agriculture, new factories were set up, and there was a modest increase in industrial production. As one historian who we've cited before, Katusian has written, 
quoting within a quote now, in the field of administrative, judicial, and other reforms, the record of Mossadegh's government is impressive, unquote. But the problems were also impressive, unquote. Mossadegh had preserved the freedom of the streets for demonstrators, and with the country in more or less constant upheaval since nationalization, the Tuta had occupied a prominent place in Tehran's vibrant political street life. That and its strength in both organizing and striking had given the British, and now, under Eisenhower, the Americans, an excuse to begin painting Mossadegh as a Soviet puppet, letting the Tuta run roughshod. Those claims were put out in the international press, and in all the newspapers in Iran that the British and the CIA controlled between them. Despite their falsity, they began to erode Mossadegh's more rightward-leaning support within the originally centrist National Front. Former supporters made both secret and public defections to the British and the Shah. Ayatollah Kashani, who was much more interested in the power in politics than the moral stands that might be borne out by religious convictions, threw his support and that of the mobs he controlled behind the British, who began paying him hefty monthly subsidies in the tens of thousands of pounds. Mossadegh had spent much of his time with emergency powers hastily rearranging the officer corps, trying to place loyal constitutionalists into the right positions and eliminate the Anglophile appointments of the Shah. That effort paid off in 1953, with the arrest of one General Sahidi, who had been trying to arrange a coup in his own favor at the behest of and with the help of the British and their deep pockets. It was clear, in short, that despite a slew of good legislation, things were going poorly, and although Mossadegh still had the overwhelming support of the common man, his base in the National Front, and especially among the mob organizers like Kashani, was crumbling. By the summer of 1953, the British had finally gotten enough parliamentary deputies on the payroll to begin raising a ruckus in the Majlis, and that's when Mossadegh took the most radical step yet, and the one which took him farthest from the constitutional laws for which he had fought for 50 years. Mossadegh asked his supporters in the Majlis to resign, which eliminated the body's ability to reach a quorum and effectively dissolve the parliament. He then set up a wide-open national referendum that would allow the populace to approve or condemn his entire program thus far. He made his pitch directly to the public. Quote, The people of Iran, no one else, has the right to judge on this issue. For it was the people of Iran who brought into existence our fundamental laws, our constitution, our parliament, and our cabinet system. We must remember that the laws were created for the people, not the people for the laws. The nation has the right to express its views and, if it wishes, to change its laws. In a democratic and constitutional country, the nation is supreme and sovereign." Unquote. And from Abrahamian now, quote, Mossadegh, the Swiss-trained lawyer who had often cited the constitutional laws against the Shah, was now bypassing the same laws and resorting directly to the theory of the general will. The liberal aristocrat who had in the past appealed predominantly to the middle classes was now appealing to the general public. The moderate reformer who had at one time even proposed restricting suffrage to literates was now openly seeking the support of the downtrodden masses. The great admirer of Montesquieu was now echoing Jean-Jacques Rousseau. To ensure victory at the referendum, ballot boxes for yes and no were placed at different locations. As expected, Mossadegh received overwhelming support, obtaining 2,043,300 of the 2,044,600 votes cast throughout the country. The referendum may have exaggerated his support, but there was no doubt he retained his mass following. According to the New York Times, the anniversary of the July uprising was celebrated by a mammoth rally in Tehran, unquote. It's the same thing that seemed obvious to me at the outset of 1954 in Guatemala, that if you put enough pressure on a Democrat and a Republican, if you pay off his political opponents, cut off his trade, and do everything in your power to undermine his political system, he will, in trying to fix things make it easy for you to smear him as a demagogue. 
even though everything that Mossadegh was trying to do seems reasonable under the circumstances to me. In the run-up to the election and afterwards, the Tuta began throwing its full-throated support behind Mossadegh and his reforms, which, as Kashani and the rest were defecting, would have been just what he needed if the British and the Americans hadn't also been involved. As it was, it gave them the cover, both in public and in their own negotiations, to write Mossadegh off as a communist once and for all. I made a fool of myself over John Foster Dulles. Oh, I made a chump of myself over John Foster Dulles. The first time I saw him twas at the UN. Oh, I never had been one to swoon over men, but I swooned and the drum started pounding and then I made a fool of myself over John Foster Dulles. Long before the referendum in the summer, in the first months of 1953, Kashani's supporters, Tuta Strikes, and the British paid mobs of Lutis, or bizarre-based thugs, acrobats, and bodybuilders, had turned the streets into such a regular riot that any Western onlooker couldn't help but begin to imagine the worst. From Kinzer, quote, Because of unrest and disruptions caused by the agents of the British, Eisenhower had come to the conclusion that Iran was collapsing, and that the collapse could not be prevented as long as Mossadegh was in power. He stopped inquiring about the prospects for compromise. Those around him took his change in tone as a sign that he would not resist the idea of a coup. On March 18th, the head of plans for the CIA sent a message to his British counterparts saying that the agency was now prepared to discuss the details of a plot against Mossadegh. Two weeks later, Alan Dulles approved the dispatch of $1 million to the CIA station in Tehran for the use in, quote, any way that would bring about the fall of Mossadegh, unquote, unquote. But it was the machinations of the Dulles brothers and Beatle Smith, already intent on a coup, as much as the situation in the streets of Tehran, that brought Ike around. From Kinzer again, describing a meeting of the National Security Council, which is the body that Steve Bannon, a Nazi, just got elevated to, quote, At a meeting of the NSC, Eisenhower wondered aloud why it wasn't possible to, quote, get some of the people in these downtrodden countries to like us instead of hating us, unquote. Secretary of State John Foster Dulles did not reply directly, but he delivered a sobering analysis of the situation. Quoting Dulles now, as reported by the meeting's note-taker, quote, the probable consequences of the events of the last few days would be a dictatorship in Iran under Mossadegh. As long as the latter lives, there was little danger, but if he were to be assassinated or removed from power, a political vacuum would occur in Iran, and the communists might easily take over. The consequences of such a takeover were then outlined in all their seriousness by Mr. Dulles. Not only would the free world be deprived of the enormous assets represented by Iranian oil production and reserves, but the Russians would secure those assets, and thus henceforth be free of any anxiety about the petroleum situation. Worse still, Mr. Dulles pointed out, if Iran succumbed to the communists, there was little doubt that in short order the other areas of the Middle East, with some 60% of the world's oil reserves, would fall into communist control. Unquote and unquote. It's fascinating to me that these guys, in official meetings, lie through their teeth. Is it that they're lying to convince? Does everybody else know that these are patent falsehoods? Or is it that everybody's bought into the lie and they work according to an entirely different world of facts? In any case, 
that quote from Eisenhower about people in downtrodden countries liking us instead of hating us, delivered right before we'd lost Iranian goodwill permanently, is incredible. The original plan for what would become known as Operation Ajax was drawn up in the U.S. in April of 1953, fine-tuned by MI6 in Cyprus, and then finalized by British and American agents working together in Beirut in May. Abrahamian notes that the British came at the plot with five major assets. They had longtime Persian experts who lived in the country and spoke the language well enough to craft excellent propaganda. Second, they had an informal network within the Iranian armed forces, formed through decades of military missions and aid, and they commanded much support within the officer corps. Third, they had the Rashidian brothers, three merchants with an import business that they used to channel British cash into the country. British spy Monty Woodhouse estimated in his memoir that they passed along more than 10,000 pounds a month to clerics, journalists, and politicians, especially in the Majlis. Fourth, until the closure of the embassy, the British had set up regular meetings with a huge slate of influential politicians, and those connections were revived by way of the American embassy compound. Fifth and last, the British had long been in contact with General Fazlullah Zahedi, the man arrested for coup plotting but later released as an unwise conciliatory gesture. He was the British pick for the new prime minister, and he was prepared to work his old army contacts hard to win the post. The Americans, chiefly, had their embassy, and, although no one knew it at the outset how key he would be, Kermit Roosevelt. In early July, Foreign Secretary Anthony Eden signed off on the plan. On the 11th, both Churchill and Eisenhower gave their go-ahead, and on the 19th, Kermit Roosevelt arrived in Iran. Operation Ajax had two simple parts. The first was to destabilize the country and the ruling regime through propaganda. This meant articles in the MI6 and CIA-controlled press, demonstrations by agency-controlled mobs organized by Kashani and the Rashidian brothers, and speeches on the floor of the Majlis written from the American embassy compound. The second half was to arrange a conventional military coup to strike and topple the government when the time was right, and the British went about it by doing what they'd been doing for the last half century, bribing the officer corps. An important element of the propaganda side was to exaggerate the Tudas' links to the Soviet Union, the size and strength of its base in Iran, and the degree to which it and the National Front were allied. From Abrahamian, quote, Although American and British policymakers readily cited the communist threat in their public statements, they seem to have taken it with a pinch of salt in their private discussions. The very first joint meeting between the State Department and the Foreign Office concurred that, quote, The present situation contained no element of Russian incitation, and ought not to be seen primarily as part of the immediate short-term Cold War problem, unquote and unquote. Remember that this is a coup plot that was sold to Eisenhower explicitly as the only way to head off a Soviet takeover. If you're wondering why people are up in arms about the cronies that Donald Trump surrounded himself with, this is why. Those men have an incredible ability to gang up and move the executive in order to advance their own agendas. Part of the propaganda half of the plan was to ensure that on coup day, the streets were filled with anti-government protesters, who would then provide a cover for the rump majlis to illegally vote Mossadegh out and for the army to restore order. The British were hoping that they could somehow induce or trick the Tuda into providing the bodies. But, as Abrahamian reports, quote, the Tuda was not really preparing either for an uprising or for an armed struggle. Its main goal was to bolster Mossadegh. The British were intrigued that the Tuda did not exploit the July disturbances to make a bid for power. A CIA report stated, quote, The Tuda has not made plans for large armed actions of any kind. It has instructed its members to protect the government against a possible coup. It does not believe circumstances are favorable for it to seize power, unquote and unquote. That's because, like the communists in Guatemala, the Tuda weren't interested in a takeover. 
but in working through the institutions of constitutional democratic government, something which the U.S. and the U.K. couldn't believe and weren't interested in themselves. In the interest of destabilization, an MI6-backed gang captured General Mahmoud Afshartus, the man that Mossadegh had put in charge of the Capitol Police and of purging plotters from the armed forces. I want to mention this incident in particular before I get into the swashbuckling spy games of Kermit Roosevelt, because it brings reality home. The idea was just to kidnap the general to show off how not even the highest echelons of Mossadegh's government were safe. And there's no record of what happened, but things went south and the general was found in the morning, tortured to death. A lot of this spook stuff seems like fun and games, but you can't lose sight of that people end up dead. And likewise, although the CIA is an agency was cavalier up through the coup in Guatemala, and at least up to the Bay of Pigs, it's not that long before killings like this, rather than buccaneer antics, become the rule rather than the exception. There was some discussion, and Foster Doris went around the table, and the only person on the State Department side whom I can remember as taking any kind of a very specific position was Ambassador Henderson, who was back for this meeting. And he said that he wanted to know none of the details. He felt that this was a considerable departure from diplomatic tradition, but he felt it was required by the situation. He wanted to approve it, and he wanted to know as little about it as possible. The CIA man who got picked to run the show was Kermit Roosevelt. Grandchild of TR, he went to school at Groton and then at Harvard, joined up during World War II, and ended up at the OSS before it was the CIA. He ran the Middle East desk for a while, and when the time for Ajax arrived, he seemed like the man for the job. It's no funny coincidence, by the way, that TR's grandson ends up on the scene, or that he might have known the Dulles brothers growing up. Much more so than you realize now, if only to a slightly greater extent than right now. The government of the United States was for a long time funneled through a tiny area and a tiny number of families in New England. Their kids going to Groton, or Andover, or Exeter, or Putney, and then moving up through Harvard, or Princeton, or Yale, and right into the service. Roosevelt later wrote about driving into Iran in disguise. Quote, I remembered what my father wrote of his arrival in Africa with his father, T.R., in 1909, on the African Game Trails trip. Quoting his father now, It was a great adventure, he said, and all the world was young. I felt as he must have felt then. My nerves tingled. My spirits soared as we moved up the mountain road. As it turned out, on July 19, 1953, we encountered an unusually listless, stupid, and semi-literate immigration and customs fellow at Kanakin. In those days, U.S. passports carried, as they do not now, some brief description of any notable features of the holder. With encouragement and help from me, the guard laboriously transcribed my name as Mr. Scar on right forehead. This I found a good omen." Unquote. I feel all of the romance of the American aristocracy, and when I was in college, I wished I'd been sent to a prep school out east to learn Greek and Latin and get channeled into the Ivies to serve the cause. And I have so much sympathy for this Lawrence of Arabia viewpoint of Roosevelt's. I want to be doing the great adventurous work of the great adventurous democracy. But, you know, other people, other countries, other sovereignty. And the events of the mid-century proved time and again that not all of the classical upbringing in the world, from the Roosevelt's to the Kennedy's to McNamara's whiz kids, could dampen the hubris that the U.S. would unleash on the world. Roosevelt set himself up in a villa rented by an American agent and spent his first weeks in Tehran developing contacts with the British existing espionage network. He bought an Iranian taxicab and with its in-service light on, used it to move undetected around the city. 
From Kinzer, quote, The only times he came close to blowing his cover were during the tennis games that he played regularly at the Turkish Embassy and on the campus of the French Institute. When he missed a shot, he would curse himself, shouting, Oh, Roosevelt! Several times he was asked why someone with the assumed name he had taken, Lockridge, would have developed such a habit. He replied that he was a passionate Republican and considered Franklin D. Roosevelt to have been so evil that he used Roosevelt's name as a curse. Unquote. Kermit thought that the vote in the Majlis to depose Mossadegh, as per the original plan, wasn't a strong enough measure, so he settled on an alternative route. He would obtain two firmans, two signed royal decrees from the Shah. The first would replace the chief of staff of the armed forces, General Riahi, who was loyal to Mossadegh and who might be able to call on picked officers to stymie a coup. The second would take the premiership from Mossadegh and deliver it to General Zahedi. Delivered on the same night with the right amount of pro-British military force, they could together topple the regime. To get the Firmans, though, Roosevelt needed to get to the Shah. First, he went through Mohammad Reza's twin sister, Princess Ashraf, who had been such a vocal opponent of Mossadegh and constitutionalism in general that even Mohammad Reza had thought it better to send her out of the country. Roosevelt made contact with her in Paris through one of the Rashidian brothers, and although she was initially reluctant, a mink coat and a packet of cash convinced her to speak with her brother. The Shah, though, indecisive at the best of times and terrified of the support Mossadegh had in the streets, declined to sign on. Roosevelt then sent General Schwarzkopf, head of the U.S. military mission and, again, father of the General Schwarzkopf you know from Dead of Storm. The Shah, afraid of hidden microphones, took the general into the center of a large ballroom in his palace, climbed and sat on top of a table to confer. The Shah told the general that he still had not decided, that he was unsure of the army's support, and that he feared being on the losing side. Schwarzkopf reported that he believed the Shah could be convinced, but that Roosevelt himself would have to do it in person. Kermit set up a meeting with the Shah through one of the Rashidian brothers, and for weeks began meeting with the monarch every midnight. He would wrap himself up in a blanket in the back seat of one of his agent's cars and be driven to a palace courtyard, where the Shah would meet him on the steps. From Kinzer, quote, In his conversations with the Shah, Roosevelt said that he had at his disposal the equivalent of about $1 million, and several extremely competent professional organizers, who could distribute pamphlets, organize mobs, keep track of the opposition. You name it, they'll do it. He described Operation Ajax as based on four lines of attack. First, a campaign in mosques, the press, and the streets would undermine Mossadegh's popularity. Second, royalist military officers would deliver the Firman dismissing him. Third, mobs would take control of the streets. Fourth, General Zahedi would emerge triumphantly and accept the Shah's nomination as prime minister. Unquote. The Shah was receptive, but when several midnight meetings had failed to convince him, Roosevelt began presenting the coup as a fait accompli. The operation was going forward, and if the Shah wanted to remain the monarch of his country, he had ought to get on board. The Shah's resistance finally broke down in the first week of August, and he agreed to sign the decrees on the condition that he could leave Tehran with his wife for a villa on the Caspian the same day, to be out of harm's way if things went south. Roosevelt agreed, and he met with the Shah for the last time before the coup on the 9th of August, 1953. According to Kinzer, who I think is getting it from Kermit's own book on the affair, quote, Before bidding the Shah farewell, Roosevelt felt it correct to thank him for his decision to cooperate, reluctant though it had been. This was a historic moment, and something beyond the ordinary was appropriate. Roosevelt came up with a wonderful way to embellish his message. Quoting Kermit directly now, quote, your Majesty, I received earlier this evening a cable from Washington. President Eisenhower had asked that I convey to you this word. I wish your Imperial Majesty Godspeed. 
If the Pahlavis and the Roosevelts working together cannot solve this little problem, then there is no hope anywhere. I have complete faith that you will get this done. Unquote, unquote, unquote. The cable was an invention, but its words were an accurate expression of the worldview at work. The Shah would receive the Firmans by courier the next morning, August 10th, sign them, and then be off to his Caspian getaway. Kinzer reports that Roosevelt went away satisfied and spent the day getting pissed drunk with his co-conspirators at the embassy. I don't have time for all of it here, but they get drunk a lot during this operation. The next morning, powerfully hungover, Roosevelt learns that the courier with the Firmans arrived too late, and the Shah, skittish as ever, had feared something was amiss and run to his resort at Ramsar. Roosevelt got in touch with one Colonel Nasiri, a British and monarchist loyalist, who will play a big role in Iran through the 60s and 70s. Nasiri could fly a plane and was gung-ho for the coup, so he saddled up, flew to Ramsar, and made it back in the evening with the signed decrees. Roosevelt was ready to go right then, but his Iranian agents informed him that it would be impossible to arrange the mobs and demonstrations required on the weekend, since Iranian Shiites strictly observed their days of worship. Roosevelt and his comrades settled in by the embassy pool for a weekend of desultory drinking and chain-smoking before coup day, the evening of Saturday, the 15th of August. From the CIA's own leaked history of Ajax, quote, At this same time, the psychological campaign against Mossadegh was reaching its climax. The controllable press was going all out against the prime minister, while deleted under station direction was printing material which the station considered to be helpful. CIA agents gave serious attention to alarming the religious leaders in Tehran by issuing black propaganda in the name of the communist Tuda party, threatening these leaders with savage punishment if they opposed Mossadegh. Threatening phone calls were made to them in the name of the Tuda, and one of several sham bombings of the houses of these leaders were carried out. Unquote. Roosevelt worried that the delay would allow word of the coup to leak out and jeopardize the operation, but news of the Shah's support for the action had made its way into the network of sympathetic officers that General Zahedi, the British choice for new prime minister, had put together, and strengthened their resolve to go forward. Before the coup went ahead, the CIA station chief in Tehran, Roger Goyran, warned Alan Dulles that it would be a mistake, and that if it succeeded or it failed, Iranians would forever after view the United States as an agent of British colonialism. Dulles had him removed from his post. Our distinct guest for this evening is the Honorable John Foster Dulles, United States Ambassador at Large. Mr. Dulles, you have a splendid reputation for objectivity among most Americans, and I'm sure that our audience tonight would like your views on the general world situation. Now, sir, in your opinion, are we stronger this year as against Russia than we were last year? Uh, I think probably not. It's pretty hard to judge those things, but uh, my estimate would be that the tide is still running against us. Everywhere I look around the world, the question is what maybe we're going to lose next, you know, and uh, we seem to be on the defensive and that they're on the offensive. The question is, uh, what are we going to lose each year more than what are we going to gain? You can look around the whole circle of the world and you find one spot after another, after another, after another, where the question is, are we going to lose this bit of the free world? Is it going to be Iran or is it going to be Egypt or is it going to be Indochina or is it going to be Korea? Or what's it going to be? Colonel Nasiri set out on the evening of August 15th in a jeep with a few picked officers and the Royal Firmans. Mohammad Mossadegh's chief of staff, General Riyahi, had personally reorganized the five brigades of the regular army in Tehran, and the first two or so levels of commanders were personally loyal to him. 
The coup had the Imperial Guards and many of the garrisons in the provinces, but it needed to replace Riahi before he could alert his subordinates. So that's how the coup started, with a few men in a car hoping to catch a general in his pajamas. Nasiri and his men reached Riahi's house without incident, but found it empty. They figured he must be with Mossadegh, and in any case the thing was afoot, so they made for the Prime Minister's house to deliver the second firman. They arrived at Mossadegh's compound, and Nasiri stepped down, decree in hand. As he did, several other senior commanders emerged from the shadows and the gatehouse and arrested Nasiri, taking him to the general staff headquarters where Riahi, well aware of the plot, put him in a cell. Roosevelt thought that his plans had leaked, but the situation was actually more complicated and more interesting. According to Abrahamian, quote, In fact, a young member of the Imperial Guard, Captain Mehdi Homayuni, who also happened to be a member of the clandestine military branch of the Tuda, had warned his party superiors of the impending coup. His organization had relayed the information to the main liaison between the party's central committee and its clandestine military network. He had been able to communicate the information to Mossadegh because their wives were relatives and they knew each other's personal phone numbers. Mossadegh, in turn, had instructed Riahi to take precautions, unquote. The call had come in at 7 p.m. that same evening. Mossadegh had declared martial law to take control of the situation, and by the next morning, with no action in the streets and no further moves from the plotters, he lifted the order. The government issued warrants for the 19 men identified in the phone call, and the Shah flew from the Caspian to Baghdad to start what he assumed was going to be a near-penniless new life. It's right now, in the interim, that we come on to the few things I would criticize Mossadegh for. First, when an advisor suggested that he execute Naziri immediately, he dismissed the idea, which was probably a good thing, but then put him and the other co-conspirators into a low-security jail as part of an effort to not inflame tensions anymore, which was probably a bad thing. Second, while an intelligence lawyer he set to figuring out what happened pieced together pretty much the entire coup immediately, Mossadegh refused his recommendation to jail one General Daftari, head of the customs guards in the capital, and Mossadegh's own nephew, both out of personal allegiance and because Daftari swore he'd kill himself for the shame. Third, Mossadegh doesn't keep martial law in effect for just a little bit longer. But this is also part of the point, as with Arbenz in Guatemala, that you can respect the man for not going full autocrat. He doesn't want these men killed, because who did they kill? He wants to try them and give them the just punishment of the courts. He definitely should have been more suspicious of outside influence, but the British embassy was already closed, but the Americans had taken great pains to keep up the image as honest brokers and friends to Iran that they were about to permanently throw away. In the afternoon of the day after the coup attempt, August 16th, Hussein Sayed Fatemi, Mossadegh's right-hand man and one of the founders of the National Front, led a rally with the rest of Mossadegh's faithful to call for the establishment of a republic. According to Abrahamian, quote, that morning Fatemi had quietly taken Ali Dakota, don't remember that name, the icon of the intelligentsia and veteran of the constitutional revolution, to Mossadegh's house to explore the possibility of naming him president of a prospective republic, opposite Mossadegh as prime minister. The rally ended with a resolution calling for the formation of a council to resolve the constitutional crisis. Mossadegh had insisted on such a council, having told his ministers he had taken a vow on the Koran to be faithful to the constitutional monarchy. Fatemi later wrote that the only time Mossadegh had ever raised his voice with him was over this issue, unquote. That is, in the light of the Shah fleeing the country and thus implicitly acknowledging that the signatures on the Firmans were genuine, the ministers of the National Front, along with their supporters, decided that the constitutional issue, who rules, Shah or Parliament, had to be resolved now and would be by a council. 
What an exciting time to be alive for a little while longer. Attention is focused once again on the Middle East, where events in Iran have taken a dramatic double twist. Forced to flee his palace in Tehran, the Shah and his queen arrive in Rome after an alleged attempt by the Imperial Guard to arrest Dr. Mossadegh and a refusal by the Shah to dissolve Parliament at Mossadegh's request. In Tehran, it looked as if Mossadegh would soon be named president, and on his orders, troops occupied the Shah's palaces and surrounded Parliament. And then the people themselves took a hand. After the failure of the coup on the 15th of August, the U.S.'s higher-ups, from the Dulles brothers on down to the station chief in Tehran, were in favor of packing up and telling Kermit Roosevelt to book it out of Iran. Roosevelt, though, recognized that it was only the pseudo-legal ploy that they tried that had failed. Their connections with the military and the mob were as strong as ever, if they could be brought into play. U.S. Ambassador Lloyd Henderson, who'd taken a long vacation to avoid appearing to be involved, rushed back to the country. He met with Roosevelt and asked what help he could offer. Roosevelt told him to set up a meeting with Mossadegh. Roosevelt, for his part, picked up Zahedi in his cab, rolled him in a carpet, and delivered him to a safe house. According to Kinzer, quote, the general had urged Roosevelt to make copies of the Firman naming Zahedi's prime minister and to distribute them throughout the city, especially in the tough southern neighborhoods where mobs were recruited. This was a brilliant idea, and Roosevelt immediately embraced it. By midday, he had commandeered one of the few copying machines to be found in Tehran. He not only sent copies of the Firman out with every agent he could find, but also arranged for facsimiles to appear on the front pages of the next day's newspapers. Later, he dispatched trusted couriers, including two Iranian officers armed with false identity papers, to carry copies to military commanders in outlying cities. By Sunday afternoon, Roosevelt had conceived his new plan. On Monday and Tuesday, his agents would spread across Tehran to bribe politicians, mullahs, and anyone else who might be able to turn out crowds at the crucial moment. During those same two days, he would send mobs into the street to commit mayhem in Mossadegh's name. Then on Wednesday, he would pull his mobs off the street, use military and police units to storm government buildings, and strike the final blow by capturing Mossadegh, unquote. There's a lot more spy gaming that Roosevelt sets into motion in these couple of days, but that's the first half of the plan. What ends up being unexpectedly just as important is American Ambassador Lloyd Henderson's meeting with Mossadegh. Roosevelt had given him a general idea, and he went in hard. Henderson started the meeting yelling about the U.S.'s long friendship with Iran and the many ways that Americans had stood up for Iran against the British and the Russians. Then he berated Mossadegh for the violence in the streets, citing the mobs that Roosevelt himself had stirred up in the name of the Tuda and invented several incidents of Americans being assaulted or harassed in the street by Tuda and National Front supporters. From the Times postmortem on the coup, quote, When Henderson left the room, Mossadegh was firmly convinced that the U.S. was undecided as to whether to continue to recognize him as Iran's premier. Shaken, the old man went to the phone and ordered the army and the police to clear the streets, unquote. This is the other mistake, and the one that, while 100% understandable, brought it all crashing down. Mossadegh had more or less been played by the switcheroo between the straight dealing of the Truman administration and the clandestine nonsense of the Eisenhower. So what he should have done was had Lloyd Henderson deported along with everyone else at the embassy, but I don't think there was any good way for Mossadegh to have known that. The Prime Minister asked the Tuda and the National Front to stay off the streets, an order which they obeyed and which helped nothing because the real mobs were being turned out by British pounds and American dollars. 
Mossadegh also put that same General Daftari, his nephew, and unfortunately a royalist traitor to the constitution, in charge of the capital police and keeping the streets clear. Roosevelt woke on the morning of Wednesday, August 19th, packed wads of cash for Kashani and the Rashidian brothers to distribute to the respective mobs, and settled in to wait. By mid-morning, the public squares and mosques were filling with people, and then a gang of thugs and looties, the Sufi bodybuilders who were something between security and organized crime in the bazaar, began making their way towards the city center. From a New York Times reporter's account, quote, The athletic clubs of the mob leaders are centers for athletic young toughs, known as knife-wielders, who can be hired for any kind of corrupt or terroristic activity. Generally, also, the mob leader will control a number of brothels and gambling houses. He and his men are for hire by politicians, and when a sizable political demonstration is desired, the mob leaders purchase the participation of large numbers of unskilled laborers, the mob that appeared from the slums of South Tehran on August 19th and presented right-wing generals the opportunity to seize the street where mullah and knife-wielder led, unquote. The mob headed into the center of town, overturning newsstands, beating up anyone wearing a white shirt in the communist style, looting open shops, burning down the offices of the Iran party and the Tuta newspaper. They broke open the jail holding the conspirators from the previous coup and released them so that they could join the mayhem. Members of the Tuda and the National Front, following Mossadegh's orders, had stayed home and were unable to fight for the streets. Likewise, General Daftari's police, rather than dispersing the mobs, first stood by and then began leading them. Army units that had not yet been purged of royalist sympathizers by the chief of staff began moving on the city with American-made Sherman tanks, ostensibly to implement Mossadegh's order to clear the streets, but really operating under the direction of Generals Haiti still in hiding, but waiting for his moment to come forth and claim the premiership in the name of the Shah. The few brigade commanders in the city who realized what was going on and tried to mobilize their units ran into opposition from pro-coup royalist subordinates, and the rest were arrested on the orders of General Daftari. A few bare soldiers and three light tanks had made it to Mossadegh's house when a mob led by a Bazari thug organizer named Brainless Shaban and the royalist forces converged. The battle to take the compound raged for three hours, but the royalist forces had 24 tanks at their disposal in the city and greatly outnumbered the defenders in manpower. During the day, before this happened, the National Front and then the Tuda had sent delegations to Mossadegh's house to beg the premier to call his supporters out into the streets and to distribute arms. The men who were with him that day wrote down several different objections later, that he didn't want to inflame an already disastrous situation, that they were all confident that officers like Riahi and Daftari would pull things through, or that Mossadegh was afraid of starting a bloody civil war and thereby inviting invasion and partition of the country as in 1907. In any case, just like Arbenz in Guatemala, Mossadegh refused to arm his people in the streets in the effort to avoid a greater evil. When the battle for Mossadegh's home ended, the attackers entered the compound over the bodies of their dead and wounded and discovered it empty. Mossadegh and the men with him had escaped over the back garden wall. By a dramatic turn in events, the royalists staged a coup d'etat under General Zahedi. The people showed their preference in no uncertain manner, and after nine hours of bloodshed, the forces of the Shah were in command, and Mossadegh's reign as virtual dictator of Iran had ended. Once again, the thoughts of the populace turned towards their sovereign as they waited for his return. The Shah returned to Tehran on the 22nd of August, six days after fleeing the country in fear. He was met by General Zahedi, the new prime minister that he had already confirmed by way of Firman. 
Also there were Nasiri and Daftari, the two officers most crucial to the coup, and brainless Shaban, the mob leader who had gathered the thugs and toughs of the bazaar. Later that week, the Shah visited Ayatollah Kashani to thank him for his help in restoring the monarchy. Not wanting to begin a manhunt, but having left his home so that the men with him could escape, Mossadegh turned himself in a few days after the coup. He was tried by a military tribunal for treason and having resisted the Shah's decree. He defended himself, the good lawyer to the last, pointing out that the Firman had been delivered as part of a clandestine takeover, and that in any case the only legal way to remove a prime minister was through a new confidence vote in the Majlis. Quote, My only crime, Mossadegh told the tribunal, is that I nationalized the Iranian oil industry and removed from this land the network of colonialism and the political and economic influence of the greatest empire on earth, unquote. Mossadegh was sentenced to three years in prison, and on his release in 1956, to confinement for the rest of his life to his village, Ahmadabad. Soon after the formation of the new Iranian secret police, Savak, two agents were assigned to guard him, and from that moment, he rarely stepped foot outside of the house in the village for the rest of his life. The international reaction to the coup and awareness as to its implications were unfortunately and depressingly predictable. An Indian Minister of Parliament named G.K. Reddy, who had visited Iran, wrote a series of articles for the Times of India that laid out the entire coup, including American involvement, almost entirely accurately. Reddy had been able to piece together his picture of what went on in the summer of 1953 from a few short visits, and if he could get it right, there wasn't much of an excuse for anyone else to get it wrong. But the Western press came down heavily in favor of the official American and British interpretation, that when Mossadegh incited the communist tuta to violence, the brave anti-communist elements of the army, with the leadership of the Shah and the help of General Sahedi, managed to restore order and wrest control of the country from a dangerous demagogue. In his book The Coup, Abrahamian describes a New York Times article that was indicative of the coverage at the time. Quote, The New York Times outdid others. It builds Zahedi as a farmer, a lifelong royalist, a strong anti-British nationalist, and unknown in Washington. It described the royalist gangs as huge mobs, awed by the shadow of God on earth. The coup is a sudden reversal and a popular uprising, and Mossadegh is old, wealthy, aristocratic, and the richest man in Iran. It further described him as a dictator who had eliminated all means of orderly change, claimed that he'd done practically nothing but watch the country go down the drain, and because of his intense nationalism and hatred of the British failed to reach an oil agreement, even rejecting the quote-unquote reasonable compromise proposed by the International Bank. The Times quoted the Shah, claiming that 99% of the population supported him, and that the change of premiers had been legal since the monarch had the authority to appoint prime ministers. It described his return as triumphant, widely acclaimed, and prestige at peak. Kenneth Love, the New York Times correspondent who wrote many of these pieces, years later in an unpublished analysis of the coup, expressed regret for having been unwittingly used by the CIA. 
unquote. And while the citizens of the supposedly democracy-loving Western world continued to believe that the Shah was a paragon of freedom in the Middle East, nobody in Iran or the rest of the developing world missed out either on the truth or its implications. From Kinzer, quote, The world has paid a heavy price for the lack of democracy in most of the Middle East. Operation Ajax taught tyrants and aspiring tyrants that the world's most powerful governments were willing to tolerate limitless oppression, as long as oppressive regimes were friendly to the West and to Western oil companies. That helped tilt the political balance of power in a vast region away from freedom and towards dictatorship, unquote. And from Abrahamian again, quote, The 1953 coup left a profound and long-lasting legacy. By destroying Mossadegh, the Shah would be haunted by his mystique, which, in many ways, was comparable to that of other great contemporary national heroes, such as Gandhi, Nasser, and Sukarno, unquote. Despite the increasingly direct and authoritative control that the Shah would exercise in Iran over the next two decades, the circumstances of his return to power would leave him linked in the minds of his people to the British, the Americans, and international oil interests. And as the Americans, first under Eisenhower and then under Kennedy, began to assume the same pseudo-colonial role in Iran that the British had been playing for centuries, the animus that the Iranian people had held for the British began to spread to the Americans too. First, Iranians lost the half-century of goodwill that earnest, idealistic, and fair-dealing Americans had built up in their country, and, as the Shah became more brutal and repressive, they developed a deep-seated hatred for the regime that vocally supported their monarch, sold him his guns and tanks and planes, and which kept him in power. The British, for their part, got much less than they might have wanted out of Ajax. Despite the Shah's return to power, public opinion would not permit the return of Anglo-Iranian, and the NIOC was turned over to an international consortium, with American companies holding 40%, the British holding 40%, and the French and the Dutch taking the rest. The consortium agreed to a 50-50 split on profits, and the Anglo-Iranian oil company, later known as BP, continued to lose ground in Iran to the Americans until 1979. So as in Guatemala later in the decade, a democratic government was destroyed in the interests of a company that did not even manage to reap the benefits. And in the same way that Eisenhower got rid of Arbenz to avoid the exact same land reforms that the U.S. would later implement under the Alliance for Progress, the Americans and the British together got rid of Mossadegh in 1953 in order to impose the deal that they said was impossible in 1951. In Iran, the Shah's retribution was swift. From a book by Michael Axworthy called Revolutionary Iran, quote, the period of democratic politics that began under Allied occupation during the Second World War ended with Mossadegh. Pro-Mossadegh newspapers were closed, and over 2,000 people were arrested by the end of the year, mainly Tuda and National Front activists and sympathizers. Government ministries and the army were purged, and the Majlis elections of 1954 were rigged, setting the pattern for subsequent elections up to the revolution of 1979. Two bogus parties were set up in the Majlis, competing only in their enthusiasm for the Shah's policies. They were satirized as the Yes Party and the Yes Sir Party. From 1953 onwards, the post of Prime Minister was in the Shah's pocket. Mossadegh's successors were appointed and removed as the Shah pleased. And all of this was done with the continuing support of the U.S. government and the CIA." Unquote. One of the most important knock-on effects of the coup and the downfall of Mohammad Mossadegh was a kind of loss of faith in Iran in the power of liberal democracy and the commitment of the West to its ideals a dynamic that would powerfully affect the development of the resistance through the 1960s and 1970s. As for the Shah himself, he had come to power during the war, under the auspices of British occupation. Maybe because of the way his brutal father raised him, or maybe by birth he was timid, 
and the great conflict of his young life was the contrast between the vision he shared with the first Shah of the monarchy and his pitiful actual power, at the mercy of the British, the Majlis, the nobility, the Tuda, and eventually Mossadegh. Whenever the young Mohammad Reza got the opportunity to exercise real power, like when he was on campaign to put down the revolt in Azerbaijan, he did it with bloodshed. The assassination attempt in the late 40s and the rise of the much more popular Mossadegh made him paranoid and increasingly afraid of his own people. His low point was landing in Baghdad after Roosevelt's first failed coup attempt. But by the time he made it back to Iran with the help of the Americans, the British, and Zahedi, Mohammad Reza had decided that it was time to establish his authority in Iran once and for all, and before long, his people would learn to hate and to fear him as much as they had the first Shah. In the U.S., the effect of Ajax and its apparent success was immediate. Whereas through the Second World War and afterwards, the intelligence agencies had been small and limited tools, after Iran, the CIA became first Eisenhower's and then every other president's go-to force an economically efficient way to influence international opinion and topple troublesome regimes. Planning for covert action in Guatemala began almost as soon as the Shah touched down in Tehran, and similar operations, first in Cuba and later in Vietnam, followed soon after. Kermit Roosevelt, describing the scene as he debriefed the Eisenhower administration in the White House about his actions in the coup, wrote this, quote, One of my audience seemed almost alarmingly enthusiastic. John Foster Dulles was leaning back in his chair. Despite his posture, he was anything but sleepy. His eyes were gleaming. He seemed to be purring like a giant cat. Clearly, he was not only enjoying what he was hearing, but my instincts told me he was planning as well. And that will do it for this episode of SFD. We're not done with Iran, though, and we'll be following this story through 1979, the hostage crisis, the Iran-Iraq war, and as briefly as possible, up to the nuclear deal that Obama worked out a couple of years ago. If there's one thing we want to get across on this cast, it's that history is in no way cut off from the present, and sometimes you can only make that case by linking the two right up together. Those shows are in our future, though, and for now, what you can do for me is to share this show with one person. Just straight up literally one person. Email them. Talk to them. Find SFD on Facebook and share the post for this episode. It's as easy as hell and it helps me a hell of a lot more than spending a hundred hours on my own Facebook trying to push it out. Other than that, you can, as always, find show notes and a full bibliography on our website. And you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and now, Tumblr. SFD is written, edited, recorded, produced, belabored, lectured, scraped together, and eventually uploaded by me from this little room in Zapopan, Guadalajara. Next time, it's the long and terrible reign of the Shah, Sabak, Ayatollah Khomeini, Islamic liberation theology, and the run-up to a much longer-lasting and more legitimate transfer of power. Until then, I'm Jonathan Coombs, and this is Safe for Democracy. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. During the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate and be instead a proud confederation 
of mutual trust and respect.